When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Thanks to you for your great feedback to last week's episode, which was a solo pod, which I'm always a little bit apprehensive about doing. But it's nice to get some good responses, and there have been quite a few good responses, to what was basically just 45 minutes of me chatting, which I have to say on paper, to me at least, doesn't sound great. But Apparently, people do quite like listening to that. So I'm going to do more of those, but not super regular. Every few weeks, well, every few months, I reckon. Maybe every three months. Because there needs to be stuff that's happened on the podcast to update on and kind of reflect upon. So, yeah, thank you for that. We're on Patreon, if you weren't aware already. I did a bonus podcast over the weekend where I reviewed the Global Spotify Top 10 so if you liked my uh, Fact Mag Singles Club video from a few years ago, you may be interested in listening to that. It was quite fun to do. I have to say, I haven't sat down and listened to that kind of music seriously for a long time. Actually, to be honest, I don't think ever. Like, there's stuff in there which is just quite weird, actually. Not at all what you'd expect to be in a global top 10 streaming numbers chart. In terms of stylistically, anyway, I mean, there's some familiar names, obviously, but yeah, some weird like song structures and that kind of thing. Anyway, it was fun, and I was able to speak my mind about a very well-known house producer, EDM house, that is. So yeah, that's over on Patreon, Patreon.com/scubaofficial, and there's music going up there this week too. Okay, on the main podcast, which is where you are right now, this week we have none other than Steffi, who is one of my favourite 
Burkine slash Panorama residence. She has been a resident there for many years, over 10 years. She also has a new album coming out next month on her new label, which is called Candy Mountain. The album is called The Red Hunter. So we talk about that a lot in detail, both the music on the album and the experience of releasing it herself. All her previous albums have been on Oscar Ton. So, yeah, she is really interesting person and someone who I wanted to get on the show from the start, basically. So, yeah, this was a conversation I was looking forward to and it definitely delivered. So I think we're going to get into it. Since you're not a patron, then you can leave us a review or a rating to show your appreciation for the uh, greatness of this show or your <laughs> enjoyment of it. Anyway, yeah, you can do that wherever you listen to this podcast. Hit that five star button. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to it. And join us in the Discord. So there's obviously a private area of Discord if you wanted to become a patron, which you can do at patreon.com slash official. But the regular Discord is open. So hotflashrecordings.com slash Discord. If you've got anything to say, you can also get me on Twitter at official, of course. And that's about it, I think. So without further delay, here is Steffi. Steffi, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Whereabouts are you at the moment? You are in Portugal, yep. am I right in saying? Yeah. So, yeah, when did you move there, actually? Well, we already found a place in 2017 and we're kind of like spending our time between Berlin and Portugal and uh, in, in end of 2020 during the pandemic, we kind of wrapped up Berlin and moved everything permanently to Portugal. What was the like motivation there? I mean, you've been in Berlin since, well, for like a good 10 years, I think at that point. 2007. Right? Yeah. 2007. Yeah. I mean, I, I needed the countryside, which I found interesting because I'm from a very small town and now I'm actually living in a village. So it's funny how you come full circle, <laughs> right. but I just wanted to have a place away from the city and, um, yeah, we found a house in the countryside. So in the beginning, it was like like spending the time in the city and then some time where, where I could actually go to the house in the countryside and just to relax and different mindset, basically. And I've, I've really experienced that the countryside was actually giving me a whole, you know, new perspective and different kind of peace of mind. So I uh, I was really ready to uh, move the end of 2020 permanently, although it wasn't really planned, because I think if the pandemic would have n- never happened, I think it would have taken us like a much longer period of time to finally move everything to Portugal. But yeah, we would, didn't want to, you know, be stuck between two countries because traveling was really difficult in the first year of the pandemic as well. So we were just like mm. sitting here and yeah, it wasn't much use of having two places really. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, I had my period in Berlin too, obviously, and kind of felt, I mean, maybe fell out of love with it is a little bit strong, but I certainly felt that I'd kind of done my time there. Mm-hmm. So was there an element of that with you? I mean, if I look, if I look at like how, how many times I've moved, 
um, I was in 96, 97, I was a year in Australia. Then I came back and moved to Amsterdam and stayed for 10 years, then moved to Berlin and stayed for thir another 13 years in Berlin. Um, I find it inspiring to switch, you know, it pulls me to a place and I, I like to, you know, listen to like the ind indicator that, you know, says like, hey, it's time to do something new. I mean, it's a different Berlin for me now because I'm obviously always back once a month for the residency at Berghain. So I'm there as a more like a guest for a couple of days, you know, and can put my energy into these um, visits in a whole, you know, on a whole different level. So it, it changed the perspective, but it's an interesting perspective. Like, I think it's not so much that I fell out of love with Berlin, but like I, I really got drawn to the countryside because I wanted to, you know, do something different during the week than live in a city. Like I really, I've, I've really looked for like a more tranquil kind of peace of mind that was really necessary for personal reasons to, you know, be able to switch off. And yeah, that really works for me, you know, gigging on the weekend and being in in uh, nightlife and then during the week, you know, being surrounded with nature makes a nice balance for me that I was ready to, you know, switch to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I just assumed that you were from Amsterdam, actually. So where did you actually grow up? No, I'm from the south of Holland, uh, between Den Bosch and Eindhoven. So I'm not, yeah, no, I'm definitely not like a, a city girl and definitely not from Amsterdam. I'm from the south. Right. Okay. And what were you doing in Australia? I just um, finished like advertising school slash art school. And then I, I was like, pooh, I just need a break from, <laughs> from loads of things. So I went there to travel. Right. Well, you've got an album coming out soon. Yeah. And um, this is obviously a point of uh, conversation here. It's the first one I think that you've done self-released. So that's something I want to yeah. talk about. But just generally speaking, the album as a, as a concept is something that we've talked about a lot on the show, going back to the start. And obviously the way people consume music has changed significantly. And um, any regular listener will have heard me saying this many times <laughs> to various, various different people. But can you just tell me why, how do you justify to yourself the release of an album in 2022 at a very kind of broad level? Well, I think, I mean, that's an interesting question because I think um, the last five years have been on a, on a different kind of um, speed when it comes down to technical development and um, the importance of an online existence, you know, and this goes hand in hand with how people consume so if it's buying music or or any other product, um, it seems to be um, a whole different kind of situation. And I think um, it's interesting to look at the new possibilities and try to understand and adapt it when you're from a more old school approach. It's nice to learn what's interesting in 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 the now you know but at the same time i think um there's still room for an album because there's still a, a, an amount of people and i think mostly based uh spotify like listeners like people that you know pick up their musical experience on spotify there's still people that like like to listen through and the the 
it might be different narrative, like might be different um, people who listen to a whole album, but I think it should it should be a personal journey, first of all. And second of all, like there will always be a crowd that likes to listen to an album. So I think it should never stop you from doing it. You know, it's, it's just the approach when it comes down to press and promoting it and how to make it visible that needs a lot of attention and maybe different kind of a yeah, way to push it to people. And um, I, I think you can still do it. I think it's very still very powerful to keep focusing on it. I, it's a shame if you um, feel that you can't anymore. Like that should never be the case, in my opinion. But the approach is different. And if you can find a nice way to befriend yourself with modern technology and modern ways of pushing music and have different expectations when it comes out, then it's it's still the same process. It's still a very like personal kind of story you're telling. So it's just that like it depends on what you uh, what you have in mind, what the out- outcome should be. You know, like if that makes sense. Yeah. So you know, you were you mentioning that the way in which an album comes into the world, like the you know the the, the campaign behind it, and like you know the the opportunity to do more in terms of press and and basically tell your story as an artist in the context of that sort of campaign so as I mentioned you're releasing this one yourself and you've been running labels of different sorts for you know a couple of decades now and I was I read an interview with you this morning in which you were talking about your labels and how you take a very sort of underground approach to them with regards to promo and all the, the lack thereof perhaps of of promo that you've done on your labels previously so in terms of promoting an album and running an album campaign obviously there's a slightly different approach required there and certainly compared to your previous albums which have all been on oscar mm-hmm. um like they obviously are you know pretty proactive in what they do promo wise i mean perhaps not to quite the same extent as some labels but it's certainly a very you know it's it's an active process there so how have you found that side of it you know, the, the kind of responsibility to promote your own record. <laughs> it's massive. <laughs> it was very overwhelming. <laughs> it was funny because I was at some point like thinking about it. I was like, oh God, I forgot how much work it is. Like if you if you <laughs> give it to a label, there might be less freedom of decision of, of, of what it will look like or, or, or you know, there's always limitations to to the process when when the responsibility is in the hand of a of a of a label that you're releasing on and i found it yeah, i found it quite overwhelming like oh god there's so much that i have to think about and especially these days because it's been there's a, there's always like a five, three or five year window between when i'm doing an album so there's a lot of lot of change that happened in in the last years in the approach like this there's like all kinds of new tools there's all kinds of new platforms where you can uh, make yourself visible on so that was that was pretty much um like oh okay let's tune into that um there's two there's two um things that are different the labels that i've done never well i've only done one album on um over over 100 hundred something releases that I've curated on the different labels that I have. Um, so I, it was always 12 inches. And I think I have a little bit of a unique approach to 
how 12 inches can be pushed. And I, I, I think what was really important for me all these years is that like to be able to um, make a point about like the artists that play the music that they also have to buy them you know, at least a fair share of it. And I think now with like formats like A-Slice, um, where you can donate your uh, your track, a part, a part of your track, track list, make make your track list visible and, and, and donate a part of it. It's like basically confirming like, hey, like don't forget the fact that people need to make a living of music or at least would like to earn something back or at least the label needs to earn something back when you're doing vinyl you need to have a break-even point where you at least have your manufacturing cost back so I've always been like look if you like it you'll buy it because you're making a, a living out of being a DJ that was that was always my policy you know and second of all I think a lot of promo on 12 inches get lost in in a in a very wide pool of mail out every week that people, you know, can't keep up with checking. So I've never had any interest in, in spending a lot of money in in that area, you know. But I, th I think if you're doing an album, it's a, it's a different thing, you know, because it's a bigger product, it's more expensive, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it has a bit more impact in the end of the day. So, yeah. Right. So... Okay. I mean, do you find that you feel that you have more responsibility to put yourself out there then? I mean, like, you know, just in the context of, of um, you know, what I said before about how you are, you know, you have been fairly like, well, I think you've consciously kept a relatively low profile on stuff like social media and, and, and that side of things. Like you are, the approach that you take to promoting yourself is, you know, it, it's underground, right? And that's in the context of working with another label on an album campaign, maybe it's easier to maintain that kind of attitude so i mean have you i mean that's a, that's a question in of itself actually but mm. i mean do you feel like you have more responsibility to push yourself out there i mean first of all i think what you need to define is what is underground i think first of all underground is when the outcome financially is relatively low of what you're doing and the aim oh, really? is... Really, would you, would you... Okay, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting way of defining that. That's, no, I mean, because I think, I think, I mean, like, like, I think, because you're mentioning, like, how, how I present, how I represent myself on social media. Like, I, I only tuned in to Instagram in 2018. And the reason was, I was, I was always very much against it because I didn't understand it in the beginning. Now, here's an interesting development, like... People who were releasing on my label said like, hey, it's not visible on Instagram and we are people that would like to be on Instagram and we'd like to see it on Instagram. So I'm like, okay, fair enough. That's somebody actually tapping me on the shoulder that as a label, you have responsibility towards people that have a different uh, uh, mindset, which I respect. And I'm, I'm not afraid to learn of people giving me input and saying like, hey, it's an old fashioned approach. So I was like, okay, let me, let me you know, get acquainted with the format and see how it could work for me. And I, I find it interesting that you're saying like, uh, I'm rather low profile because there is a lot that I post, but it's the, I think it's the type of content that is a debate for many people. I mean, I don't post any, I don't post a weekly video of how my gig was. I, I don't have, I have no, <laughs> right. I have no relationship with that, to be honest. Like it doesn't make any sure. sense. Somebody pointed out to me the other day is like, 
that people post it for their own good of showing how great it was and forget to tag the artist that, you know, the record that's actually running in the background. And I thought, <laughs> oh, wow, that is a really, that's a really solid and fair point. That is not my approach. Like, um, I think it's a stylistic thing that you're seeing that maybe maybe mine's a bit more natural and a bit more goofy when I'm in the garden and being like just happy with my flowers or whatever. It's maybe, you know, from a commercial perspective, less attractive than people posting a selfie of, of, of massive crowds or uh, in certain outfits or in certain settings or whatever, you know. So I think that makes it, that makes it maybe a little more, a bit more underground. I don't know because that's that's up to the the user to decide how they how they you know how they perceive it you know. But I think I'm I'm for my level I'm pretty much out there to be honest more than ever. I mean I I, I guess it's kind of uh, it's an attitude thing more than anything else, right? Because I think I mean I'm, yeah, obviously you're you're on socials and you're posting stuff, and actually quite a lot of the stuff you post is actually quite personal, which is is a different way of doing it right but i think like just in terms of like how you define underground like i think that's an attitude thing as much as anything else because i think it's possible to be commercially successful just in terms of the the numbers and still have a kind of underground attitude i would i would not i i I, sorry to break break your sentence but i think i think we're talking about underground and a certain genre and type and quality of music maybe gets mixed up you know and I think what like and the decision making on how you want to navigate your career if you want to call it like this I think that is more like maybe there's different approaches to it and I'm not preaching one or the other it's just what I think what people forget is that like it's interesting like for example if 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 you're all about the music either you get the an etiquette like oh you're like you're a geek or a freak or a gear freak or a nerd or or you're underground do you know what i mean like because it's it seems to be it, it's it's a true thing or something to some people whereas i'm like well in the end of the day we started off it being about the community about the party and about like um the vibe you know and and yeah some people might go into different directions because they feel that that is representing their vision on the whole um situation you know whereas i think yeah people when you're when you are a bit serious about things it gets perceived as underground but i mean you can still make a living of it i don't know whether that's still underground then do you know what i mean like when is it fair to claim that you're underground but you're playing at a massive festival i find it a very delicate discussion that hasn't really got the right answer to all of it because it's very subjective in a way isn't it like it's i don't know it's fair to say oh oh, i'm really underground but at the same time uh, you're taking an, an expensive flight to a place where you're just earning a lot of money i don't know if if that's fair to say you know yeah, I, I completely... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I completely see where you're coming from. And I think like there, there isn't a clear definition of what underground is. And I think there's maybe like a number of definitions that people use. Like, So there's probably one with, which specifically relates to what the music sounds like. And then maybe there's another one which people use with regards to, you know, how you 
live your life you know like like you're saying yeah, or like, how you represent yourself these days i think i think if you were if we would park the the term underground for a minute put it on the shelf for a minute and talk about <laughs> representation i think that's more of an accurate discussion of like underground or not being underground i think there's two different there's two important things is always like the quality of the music the the type of music, the development, musical development, and the representation, like how you present yourself. These are interesting things to look at. And I think what we should not forget is that we are a world within a world. And in the big world, you know, globally, there's so many different species on the planet and everybody does life in in their own way, thinking they do the best version of themselves, you know. And in our little world, that is a world within a world, it's the same thing, you know. And and people get influenced by by what is maybe hot and what is not. And that is like, like you have to do a whole study on that if you really want to have a have a conversation about that in a in a podcast because it's very it's very. Um, it's very interesting because it's not so easy to say like this is right or this is wrong. Like everybody is living their own life and it's very subjective of what you feel is is the right thing to do because other people might be completely happy with the way they represent themselves and they are happy with the music they play or the music they produce, you know, like so it's it's an it's an inter- interesting discussion because we start to whine about things that are developing in a, you know, how we perceive it as a as a as a oh it's getting commercial or oh it's getting bad or oh it's it's not like it used to be kind of thing, and I think the challenge is is to yeah internalize it and 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 see like how can I be you know the best of service, still be critical about things because that's really necessary, but at the same time emphasize creativity and 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 try try to always deliver the best version of yourself is really so it's it's really interesting especially because we're living in such a fast society you know like there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of new things and virtual reality and reality and yeah it's very um, challenging so going back to the or focusing a little bit more on the, on the kind of presentation aspect like i mean you use the term before like if you're kind of quote unquote all about the music right which seems you know on the face of it like it should be a sort of strange thing to pick out in a supposedly you know music scene but i do think that like the presentation side of like a you know an artist a, a producer's career it's getting to the point where it's sort of threatening to kind of eat the music side and you know one of the things that we've talked about on the show previously to this is to the extent that that is happening and or the ability to pick out artists who are more a presentation exercise than a music project right which is a bit of a uncomfortable shift for me and it's links to certainly the well specifically the instagram thing i think but just to go back to you know what my original question was with regards to you know promoting your own album campaign i mean have you felt any pressure to present yourself any differently as a result of doing that it's just that's a really simple question no 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 okay but i mean do you feel the pressure to do i mean maybe not differently but to do more or less i'm just i'm just sort of comparing you know running your own campaign versus having a label doing it for you 
and the differences that you might feel there with with that stuff it's just i mean there's this it's like it i think it's like a bit of a, a, a you feel more naked when you're doing it yourself because you're closer to the source of, of, of getting the feedbacks in and sales. And, you know, like if I'm uploading everything in the system and um, I have um, wonderful support from Clone Distribution, I've been with them for 22 years and they know exactly um, that I need a phone call every once in a while to... <laughs> to talk a lot and they have to make time for that because sometimes I, an email, I don't know what I'm doing sometimes because I'm so busy with, you know, getting all the, getting all the tools right. Because it is, it is like, it's a lot to learn about like online music these days. It's fascinating. It's threatening, but it's really fascinating at the same time. And coming back to your question, I think when you're self-releasing your, you can see the numbers. How many pre-sales are there? Like, how are people picking it up? Has so-and-so ordered enough for the shops already? How does this distribution uh, company uh, reacts to um, your new album? Like, is there enough positive feedback? It's You're very close to the source of this, which is it's always a bit like, oof, okay, you have to be prepared for that. Like, you have to lower the expectations and if it's a bit of a difficult period of time or whatever or something something is difficult in the process it it's directly projected onto you and you have to be able to handle that you know whereas you would do it with a bigger label you could ask for a statement you know when it's time you can do your interviews you can you can occasionally mail the label and say like how's it going do you need anything from me are we on track but you you have no access to all these numbers and all these uh things that need to be done so it's a bit less yeah there's a bit less of a, a responsibility that you're directly involved with that could set you off when when you know you see certain numbers or you thought you're going to sell a lot or not. I don't know. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at, right? Because it's a bit more naked. It's, a, it's actually a bit more naked, to, to, to be honest. Like you're a bit more stripped. And that can have, well, certainly from my experience, I've, I've <laughs> had various experiences with those sorts of, yeah, being, being exposed to those sorts of things and, and like struggling to deal with them sometimes, you know, just getting emotionally involved with stuff which you don't, when you don't see those numbers. You know? That is, that is. I think you've. I sometimes tend to meander in my answers, but like emotionally involved is actually the right answer. Like that's really spot on what you're saying. I think that is because you're both the A and R, and the label head and the artist, and that's like that's a bit of a double responsibility that can be yeah that can actually be overwhelming on an emotional level. You have to you know sometimes yeah be prepared for that. Exactly. Sorry, I was interrupting you. Yeah, no, sure. Absolutely. So um, let's talk about the actual music then, shall we? Why um, not? But went back and listened to your first album actually earlier, Yours and Mine, which came out in 2011. So yeah. over 10 years now. And it struck me that, I mean, well, okay, is it is it fair to say that your albums have progressively become more abstract or maybe less, like, yeah, less, totally. less straight ahead? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that process. Well, I think uh, I think there's there's also a little bit, um, you know, it's more one more than one story to um, to tell about that. I think when I, um, I I started to build up my studio in two thousand, and and the first release came out in what was it? Maybe eight 
eight years later or something. I was very late with releasing stuff because I thought it wasn't good enough and I wasn't really eager to get it out there if it was maybe too weak or whatever. And then Oscar, you know, they pushed me a lot into, um, you know, starting to release some music. And I think a lot like has to do with the fact that around that period of time, I was my 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 sets were like house and 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 uh, melodic techno and they I mean they still are but it was it was a lot more houseier than it is and I think as a producer I was very happy making this kind of music and I think what I don't like to do is stick to the same genre and that doesn't mean that I have have to hop like jump from left to right and do all kinds of different things but I like the progression in in every album that I'm trying to make. Now, I do I do think there's a big gap between the last and the first, although I also see parallel in, in, in the melodic elements that are very me. But if I look at the two albums in between, it makes sense. It makes completely sense. And what, what I've done lately is because I've re-released the first album on another sub division of one of my imprints i can't stop it's ridiculous um i think now i can because i've produced so much over the years i can make a division between if i'm doing my solo stuff and i'm I'm making solo music i can do my experimental stuff which i really yeah it's really where i I, I ended up. But if I do more housey stuff or my collaborations with Virginia or with other people that I've collaborated with, there's other sides of me that can can um, exist in this area. Do you know what I mean? Whereas when I started, it was all one thing. And then over the years, I've I've just made subsections of what I would like to do. And for me, that makes perfect sense. And in the end of the day, it's all... It's on one handwriting, but it's nice to have to have my own little Steffi world where I'm diving deep into what I want to do. And and because I don't give a peep about like what people expect from me, I know that I'm going to u- lose a couple of followers that think, oh, my God, she's getting more abstract and more faster or slower or whatever. But to me, it doesn't matter because I want to do what I want to do. And if. And people will see my housey side, like that I've done on the first albums. It always comes back, whether through a remix or a collaboration with Virginia or whatever. It's just that I, I, I do me, and I want to decide for myself that if it develops into a certain direction, I'll, I'll take the chance of like losing a couple of people that don't want to listen to that side of me, or just people that have respect for the natural development of the of my individual process, you know. So it's the art of not giving a... Somebody wrote a book about that, actually. I didn't read it. But no, it's, a fun, it's a fun title. I think it's, 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 it's actually retiring. I said to somebody the other day, it's retiring from actually giving a, giving a fuck about things, you know. And I th- it, it doesn't necessarily need to always sound the same or, or restrict myself to a certain genre. And people who know me as a DJ know that I don't do that as well. You know, if I play in small clubs and I want to do a house or an electro set, like I, it's tough shit for the people that expect something different. <laughs> like if you know, have no expectations, you've got no rejections. You know what I mean? Right. So, <laughs> Okay, so you mentioned that you started building the studio in 2000. So were you 
were you previously a musician? Like, did you, did you, you know, learn instruments when you were a kid and all that kind of stuff? Only the piano. But I wasn't very motivated because I was taught the piano by a nun and, and the genre was very boring. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't really, I, I don't know, I was 10. I wasn't really feeling Furelise. It wasn't really inspiring to me. I was like, oh, I like synth pop, but this is really fucking boring. And my mother was very sad when I decided to give up piano. She's like, oh, can I bribe you? Maybe just like buy you something and, and then you keep going I'm like oh I can't be bothered really it's just it just doesn't inspire me and I I I regret it now because of course there's some some of it that is still there but god how how excellent would it be if I was like like a like a massive piano player would be so beneficial but it was this genre couldn't really couldn't kick me at all I was like oh god it's so boring so I stopped eventually and then I somebody learned me a little bit of guitar but that, as far as that was as far as it went in the end of the day. So, what were your first bits of kit in the studio? Eight oh eight, Juno one oh six, and then one oh one that was given to me by my by my v, um, VJs um, who were doing my, uh, the the visuals of my monthly night in Amsterdam. Captain Video, really cool people, and the guy said to me, "Oh, are you building up studio? I've got synthesizer lying around. You're more than happy to take because I'm not using it." And he opens the he opens the cupboard and there was like a 101 in there. And he's like, did you want to sell it? He's like, oh, you can have it. I'm like, oh. So it nice. cost me 17 bucks to get the volume button repaired. And then got like bass inside. It was quite cool, actually. Still have it. Like, it's never going to leave my studio. I thought that was so cool that somebody just gave that to me. Yeah, so that was that. Those are three great pieces to, to start off with. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun, and there weren't so many plugins then, so it was it was also very limited in 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 terms of it wasn't limited because there were so many synthesizers out, but it was like I mean those are the classics. The eight oh eight was dead cheap, so it's it's a laugh now if you know how expensive it is. But it was great. I mean, like everybody likes an eight oh eight. You know, it's a cult thing, and it was a popular drum computer to have. You know, but I I just love the sound of it. You know, it's it was fun that I could get a cheap one so the studio didn't cost that much it's quite funny and then it started to become really like an obsession to get like loads of gear I don't know like it's same with sneakers for me like once you start you can't <laughs> stop it's a bit ma- it's a bit of a manic side really put in my personality um I've been I've been uh, quite good though the last years I've been really brave like I've sold a couple of things and um I I really dove into the world of uh, plugins during the pandemic I thought that was fascinating as well so I, I trained myself in the last two years in a pandemic a pandemic to be able to have this uh, um, the approach that I have in the studio when I'm using outboard gear and I'm not stating analog because I think that's really ridiculous but outboard and <laughs> that I can actually switch from being in a studio to switching to be on my laptop and feeling the same level of being comfortable in both settings it was it was a great journey to do that as well so there's so many cool vsd things that you know are a good substitute for when you don't have your studio available yeah i think having parameters can be really useful having like constraints like that and and the problem with plugins is that it can be quite overwhelming just the just the amount of things that you can amass 
yeah, in, yeah, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. box. But then I can, I think like you can, you can get into a similar kind of thing. And with, I still can't mix. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Still deaf. Well, I, I think you can get into a similar kind of mindset with without board because you, there's a tendency. I mean, as you just as you just mentioned, like to to kind of manically collect stuff. And I've definitely had that experience before where you think, oh, if I just get this one thing, that's going to completely change oh, my yeah. sound. That's, that's the answer to oh, what I'm doing. Oh, it's ridiculous. Right? But I do, I mean, in all fairness, I mean, I do admit like in a heartbeat that I'm very manic about these things. But I do have to say with everything I've purchased, I made a trek because that's the challenge of it. Like I've, I, like I, I made it, I made a trek with everything or, or a 12 inch or whatever with everything that I've of bought, you know, so it's it was well worth it, you know. And why not? You know, you can always sell it again and you end up with probably only your laptop in the end of the day when you're eighty years old because it's you know <laughs> you have to you have to get some pension. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me what was the process like of, of kind of learning to do it? Because if you were going in like pretty cold with a you know a couple of you know pieces of rolling kit Mm. And then not releasing for seven years. Tell me about the the journey there. Oh, I thought it was a nightmare in the beginning because I'm 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 as in, in German they say like a streber, like is somebody that like really wants something very bad. So I put my teeth in it and it needs to happen and it, preferably overnight, which wasn't the case, of course. So when I when I started to set the studio up, I remember um, I called um, I called one of the guys. Uh, from Funkama, which is like an uh, abstract electronic uh, duo from from the Netherlands, who were very active in the nineties, he's a really um, really cool guy. And I said to him, like, "Oh, can you just quickly tell me on the phone how to connect this?" And he said to me, "Like, look, I'm going to say something to you that's that is going to make you hate me, but like when you think about it in twenty years' time, you'll be very very grateful that I've given you this answer." I said, "I'm not going to tell you what to do." I'm saying to you do it by yourself figure it out and this is how you always know how to connect your studio so i was like oh god <laughs> very annoyed <laughs> like fuck you know um I, you know like oh midi audio like oh okay you know, like what? What's the difference again? You know, but I thought it was cool because he was like very, he was very kind about it. He's like, just figure it out, like really figure it out, like do it again and again and again until it works. And he made me do this, and um, yeah, it 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 just became this autodidact. Is that like even a word? Yeah, autodidact. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. it became like this. This you have to learn it by learning by doing. And um, when I started to you know jam with all the all the equipment i i thought that making an arrangement was the most scary thing of it all whereas now i find the most fascinating thing and the most fun thing to do actually and i i thought i i thought oh this is shit so i'll just did 60 jams and then throw it out and then oh this is shit and then this is shit until you know i was like okay i'm i'm not getting any further with this and i moved to berlin in 2007 and I, I quit my job as I was a freelance graphic designer and I quit my job and I could just focus on the music until a colleague of mine just came in. He said, you got so much lying around. Like, why is this not finished? I said, ah, it's, it's not good enough. And it's just make it, make it, make one track at least out of it. And then, yeah, they, you know, they just really pushed me to do that. Like, Yeah, sure. It's really interesting that you say that you find the arrangement part or the kind of, I guess, 
sort of songwriting part, you know, the sequencing part, the most interesting now? Because that's, I mean, the stereotype thing, like, is that, you know, the, the electronic musician has endless jams and then can't finish anything. So, yeah, t- tell me, tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, it's I mean, fascinating. I'm certainly a person who is guilty of. The yeah, you form. always have to kind of, in the end, like the, I mean, the four-bar loop is amazing, but like turning it into a four to six-minute track, you know, in our scene, most of the tracks are between four and six minutes, or four and seven minutes. That's the most challenging thing, and it's and and there's always this beginning where you're like, ah, oh, it's not going to work, and then you know you have to. You, you know, you have to jump over just one horde when you know, like, okay, if I have this, it's going to sit. And then it's just tweaking and fine tuning. And I, yeah, I love that. I don't know. I just became so, I, I, I befriended myself with the process and then started to really love it. You know, like, um, yeah, that is, it's, 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 it's such a cliche, but it was, in my case, it was really like, you know, when you're, you're, you know, with a sledgehammer or whatever, you're just like punching a massive hole in in the ice and then the water just breaks and boom it's pouring out and that's how it happened with me like once i did once i'd done one arrangement it was like oh oh this is amazing okay let's go and then it's just started you know it's crazy yeah i find that well from from my perspective i I definitely have a tendency to go around in circles with loops and i have to really be disciplined about making myself like stretch it out as early as possible in the process you know like get get, get a longer version going because otherwise I have this tendency <laughs> to um you know just go on this endless endless thing and then the problem with that is that you you get used to hearing it in a certain way and then you try and arrange it try and sequence it but it always sounds different right yeah it, it, there's a definite shift there when you try and put it into that kind of more structured setting so when was that shift that happened for you when did the penny drop well, I think about Maybe 2008, 2009, after I, like, re- released um, right. released a track of, for um, Thomas Umo's Mixed City. And if I look back at it, it's a very naive kind of housey thing. Nothing really, like, mind-blowing or anything, but it was just, a f- for me personally, it was a massive challenge because I f- finished it in one night because she was like, I'm not, I'm not having it. Like, you need to be on my Mixed CD. I'm not having it, which I thought was really, really... Uh, amazing that she was so persistent because she was like you have to get get your stuff out there and get it going and it was funny because like when I did the an EP called Kill Me with Alif on um, on Osgood Nick Hupner was doing the A&R at the time and he was I was just like being being cheeky me like hey when am I doing an album and then he said to me oh actually I wanted to talk to you about that but it was such a like typical me kind of like oh you know kind of thing and he's like actually I wanted to so I think like I I wanted to dive into the deep and they they also pushed me a lot into um into just doing that you know and just uh, that's a really that's a really thankful um it's a really great like it's a, it's a it's a great luxury like I'm really thankful it's just that they they've just always been like just do it you know just don't 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 sit around and just do it you know like it's really uh really carte blanche kind of kind of vibe so yeah when once that happened I I wrote the first album didn't have any expectations of it you know by accident there was a tune on there that did quite well but it was just all like oh I've got an album oh that's so exciting I never thought I was going to make eight tracks uh, and and be done with them you know it's it's all like it was all very naive 
but yeah, once that train started to roll, it went really fast. And then, of course, all the collaborations came because I learned so much from from those as well, like working with other people, other ways of writing, other ways of using gear, using software, approaching, doing stuff on the fly in one take, doing a lot of sampling. Like it's it's complete, like all the process is kind of like passed. Yeah, bye. So yeah, I'm, I'm very privileged of, of, of working with all these fantastic people and, and, and also learning a lot from them, how they do things. And I think if you keep your, if, if your curiosity is something that always triggers you to do the next thing, you can learn so much about making music. It's an endless, endless process. Really fascinating. And as I said, I still can't mix because I'm so deaf, but it doesn't stop <laughs> me from trying to do my best, you know, like... You just mentioned like the first album and being asked to do your first record is always a what's well, a kind of important moment in an artist's career. So, I mean, by the sound of things, you kind of just went into it like without thinking too hard, which couldn't be just the best way of doing anything like this. And quite often the biggest problems happen when you overthink stuff. So, yeah, true. I mean, yeah. was it it sounds like it was a pretty frictionless process then that the first record but i said th- yeah and, and and it's a very naive kind of you've got it's like a blank slate kind of thing and because you're so naive about it like it's also very challenging very scary at the same time isn't it? that that like because you don't know the creative process of doing a project like this you're just like oh i'm just gonna make nine songs and 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 see if for me it was just a matter of like oh if he, if they can sell us at least get the production's cost back that would be so amazing that means that i've succeeded not making a minus or so that was my approach and I and I hope people would like it and they would look at me like are you mad like why would they not like it I said well I don't know like who's waiting for me then in the end of the day like there's so many good producers out there there's so many wicked producers out there like what makes me different different than the other like I, I don't know I was so so I didn't expect anything it was so new to me and maybe you know um in retrospect, I, I, I wasn't even sure whether I was ready, but because I said it, like, hey, when I, can I do an album? I, I was like, okay, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And that's that's very me. Like, if I say I'm going to do it, like, I'm just going to jump in a very deep, deep pool and see, you know, see if I can swim in the end of the day. So, yeah. It, and, and then once you've done one, like okay, let's do another one. And then it gets more serious because you've done one and it went well. And then, you know, then it, then you have to keep the voices out of, of like low expectations. Do not care about what other people want from you. You don't have to write another song like so-and-so, you know, like just do you and, and do what makes you happy. And I think when I when I went um, into, I, I, I switched studios from, from, uh, sharing my studio with Nick Hupner at the time to going to the to the airport uh, Temple of Airport where I was on my own and uh, working with uh, Sam Barker on my on my uh, massive amount of uh, patch page which I thought was absolutely <laughs> that was the most frightening thing for me in the end yeah, of the right. day and learning about this side of making music with a with a with a person like Sam who's absolutely like mind blowing mind who um who loves troubleshooting and, and and geeking around and making the best setup possible with what you have I, I learned so much from that as well and then once i've got that set up with an outboard sequencer i 
taught myself to do two jams a day. That was my, my, my thing. Like I go into the studio and I do two jams a day and regardless of what the outcome is. And that was my, that was my, really my comfort zone that, that makes me uh, not care about what the outcome is. Cause anything I don't use, I, I put aside. And after I've done 20 days of jamming, I can just see what I've got like, and, and, and collect, pick the fruits that are ripe and the rest I can just leave on the shelf. And I think that system for me was a really, really helpful process as well for me to, um, yeah, to just let go of like that. It has to have some kind of result. Do you know what I mean? It's just a, the, the the joy of being in the studio became much more important than the outcome. But it doesn't mean I don't care about the outcome, but it's just it, it it's easier to let go and e easier to understand the creative process when you're writing bigger things or yeah, doing something out of your comfort zone or something. I mean, if you can enjoy the process, then the end result is usually better I mean not always but I mean it can definitely give the whole thing a better atmosphere but have you ever had a like a difficult period an extended period where you've had it had trouble in the studio in terms of writing I just I just don't write that I think that like you know there's a there's a typical thing called writer's block mm. and I if I if I if I'm in the studio I don't care what the outcome is unless you're remixing but you you know that you're gonna and, and you probably relate to this also like when you're doing a remix you're jamming around and if it's not working you know it will come there's there's either in an hour or in another day or in another session you know it will come and it goes click and then you look i've got it and now all i have to do is arrange it and if you can be patient about it then that's not a it can be frustrating sometimes, but it's, it doesn't have to be a big thing because you know it will come in the end of the day. And coming back to your question about like when you're when you're writing music it, in terms of having having a writer's block, it, I just define it as periods where I don't write. Mm. And that means that like I'm not going to the studio and I don't have to go to the studio because why would I have to go there? And when I'm going, I know I'm going to, you know, make whatever comes out of it and it's fine. But when I'm just at home, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to work in the garden or, uh, or, or or just just do other stuff or listening to other people's music. I just don't write. And there can be there can be a period of time, like two months that I'm not doing anything. And it's fine. And if I would force myself to go into the studio after doing an album, it's like delivering a baby. You have to go on maternity leave for like a, quite quite a couple of weeks to digest the process, right? Like, so that's how I see it. Yeah. So yeah, no, no. That's a good attitude to have. I have to say, I wish I was able to take that view a little bit more often. I often find myself just trying to like battering around my way through those periods, which is just the wrong way of doing it, <laughs> to be honest. But I, I, but I think like if you're going into the studio and you're thinking like it needs to be good when 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 I close close up the studio by the end of the day it needs to be good that that's so, so tense isn't it like I thought when the pandemic hit I was like oh the first six weeks I was like oh my god I'm so so utterly tired and and as soon as I picked up you know working on the labels and and starting to do music I, I it was a insane how creative I was I was like Jesus Christ what is this you know like so many things I don't know and then and then there was a period of time where I did less and I accept that so it's not it's not a big deal you know unless you're on the deadline then it's a bit yeah more shitty but yeah I don't know so 
Just sort of going back to musical styles, and we talked about you know your music getting more abstract over the course of the the albums. Like one quote that I picked out from an interview with you this morning was you saying that you don't see yourself as a contemporary artist, which I thought was a really interesting way of putting it. It must have been a long time ago that I said this. I think it was maybe <laughs> no, like no, 2015, no, no. 16 or something, something around that sort of time. So yeah, Oh, no, I know why I said it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. Well, yeah. Well, why did you say it? I'd, what, what I meant I, in the context of what, what, what was asked, I think some people have the ability to always push a boundary in a way that when you listen to it, like it's, it's, they're able to sh- take things to another level or create a subgenre or whatever. There's just people that can do that. Like, and I, in the first two albums, I, I was much more about like um, the classic uh, style of house and techno. So that doesn't really feel like, oh, I'm a contemporary artist that like um, brings something new to the table. Like um, right. it, 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 was, it was house and techno and that ex- exists for like over 30 years already now. And I think there are people around there that are very, very... Um, yeah, they're, I mean, for example, Ortega or something, you know, like they mm-hmm. they have drifted quite far away from the first album, in my opinion. Yeah, sure, I'd agree. But still they, can, still, they can do stuff that is a thing on its own where you're just like, you don't necessarily have to like it. I mean, there's a period of time that I couldn't really follow where they were going, but they were going somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's, they, they, they've always been so on the edge of things that I would say like, yeah, that is like a style that I can't really define. And when when I look at my first two albums, yeah, it's, it's easy to say, like, oh, yeah, we can put this in the house and techno section, house and, 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 and maybe like, um, yeah, Detroit, Detroit, influenced techno is not like oh my god she wrote something that that didn't exist before like i don't see myself as an artist artist who does that you know so that was the, right that was that okay and so that has, that's changed has it by the sound of things i do i i'm not that's up, not, not up to me to decide <laughs> that's up to, <laughs> up to you to decide the spectator it's not up to me to decide i i just Let's put it this way: like, if somebody says says to me, like, "Oh, nice, I I, I see a, a a logical progression in your music, and one album doesn't sound the same as the other," then I'm already happy. That, then my mission is accomplished, basically. And if this is contemporary, I think this what what I've done this time is the most fresh thing. It has no references to classical house and techno. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's really my kind of world. But people like to use references. I find it a bit annoying. Like, I think with, like, my third album, World of the Waking State, it was already, a, like, very free kind of way of writing. It's very, like, it already started to, you know, detach itself from 909, 808, like, did all the drums on, on drum synthesizers, tweaked my own stuff, recorded my own kind of sounds, and still people needed to... Oh, it's Electro. Oh, oh, see, she's a Drexia fan. I'm like, oh, my God, seriously? There's sing- seriously not one track on the album that sounds the same, but it feels like you always need to be pigeonholed or something or put in a box, otherwise people can't really deal with it or, or it's just p- 
poor writing from the journalist perspective that could also be the thing but i i i think this last album is definitely yeah it's is definitely um very modern for my for my taste <laughs> you know so so how is how is this record relating to your dj sets are you playing out a lot of the tracks in when you play out or well it depends where i am i mean in a, in a nice warm up set like I could definitely play it, but I I never I've never really written for the dance floor, so it's 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 stuff that just come out comes out, and I don't really think about like if it can be played, and 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 in my in my opinion, it's very it's a it's a listening album, even though it's very like upbeat up tempo and and very beats beat oriented. It's it I don't know, like let's see. I don't really, I don't really play that much of my own music in my sets because I like to hear other people's music. But has that always been true? Even when you were making more sort of more dance floor friendly yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And well, I mean, I was going to ask the question before. Actually, was the motivation to make music in the first place relating to your DJing? Because I'm presuming that you had been, well, I know, I know you'd already been DJing prior to 2000, right? So yeah, yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. To, what, to what extent do the two things relate to each other for you? I think it's also because the, 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 the people that I was close to, they were making music and I thought it was really interesting and it kind of like, I'm a person that easily gets challenged to do something, you know, and I saw all these, you know, I saw all these pieces of equipment and 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 buying so much music so like oh i would oh i would like to get into that you know it's the same it's the same kind of motivation when in the mid 90s when my friends were buying records and they were playing a lot of this more like warp related abstract kind of stuff you know it's like oh that's nice i think i want to buy this on 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 vinyl too i think it's nice to have this kind of music we were going to a lot of raves and because the the, the guys were playing all these records you know when we came back from a party it's like oh it's oh i like this you know and it and, and when i get attracted to something i can yeah i guess you can call it manic again i can be can i can commit myself to something like really on a really intense level so when i started to mix records it was for me it's like oh yeah yeah sure this feels really right to me and it was with producing was the same thing i got drawn to it and then when i started it's like oh yeah oh oh this is interesting oh this is a world i want to dive into all you know all these different kind of sounds and because i i'm i'm also like like a music freak when it comes down to collecting music from other people and different genres like like my 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 collection is very yeah, it's a very wide collection of different genres. I was, I'm also always very interested in the process of how these records were made. So it was just a matter of time before I would dive into that world myself. I guess. Sure. Okay. So, so with DJing, then you you were living in Amsterdam when you first started buying records. I'm fairly confident in in saying. No, at least I was living in the south when I started to buy records. Before I moved to Amsterdam. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, I want to talk about Amsterdam, because one of the things we've been trying to do on the show is like develop, like chart the development of like the music scene in different cities. And we haven't talked about Amsterdam at all. And I'm really interested to get a bit of info on it and how it sort of developed in that kind of 90s period or like late 90s, I guess. So 
yeah, tell me about how you, because so you came up from Australia and, and, and moved to Amsterdam. So give me a kind of snapshot of what it was like in the city then, kind of musically. Like what were the important things going on in town? Like what were the key kind of clubs and all that sort of stuff? Well, it's an, interest, it's an interesting question because I've not so much been a club person, believe it or not. Like I, I used to go to much more like underground parties, much more like a warehouse kind of setup than, for example, you had Roxy and It and um, uh, Matzo, where I eventually became a resident. Um, key key house clubs. Matzo, Matzo was a little bit more techno and, and underground oriented. It used to be a new wave kind of club, like started in the 80s. Roxy was like late 80s. It was much more house um, performing arts. Like, uh, and it was also much more house, um, uh, big queer community. But I wasn't really a part of this, to be fair. Like, I was much more... Um, into, for example, there were like, um, IF was doing like acid, like before he went on the Italo wagon, he was like uh, playing a lot of acid, like the, the, the Beverly Hills um, moniker and, and all these bunker people. And there was, there was a lot of this around as well. And that was more my thing. So I, I, I wasn't really so much of a club head that listened to... Um, yeah, more like housey kind of stuff. Like we we went to the more experimental uh, parties. Like it was a big uh, warp freak at the time, and this was all like this was actually mainly the period of time when I was living down south. When I moved to Amsterdam, I was already collecting records and you're know, nerding around and um, bumped into uh, a person who fairly quickly. Uh, offered me a residency um, at at Matzo, and and uh, this was ninety seven probably, and we were playing a lot of electro, a lot of like uh, Dutch West Coast stuff, and um, um, a lot of Detroit electro mixed in with um, a lot of like IDM experimental, warp uh, reflex, all these kind of flavors. So I actually b- became much more housey when I when I moved to Berlin and, and became a, a resident at, at um, Panorama Bar. So... Well, hang on a sec. Yeah, let, let, me, let me just go back a little bit further. When did you yeah. first get decks? When did you first start mixing? Uh, 95, 96, maybe? Yeah. Okay. With two Strictly Rhythm records. I thought it was really boring. <laughs> right. Can I get something more experimental? Like, can you give me something with a challenge? Oh, they were so annoyed by me. He's like, fuck off. But you, you were know? playing out pretty quickly then after getting involved with it. Yeah. Yeah, I was lucky to, to um, bump into the right people. Was that something that you went after kind of aggressively or was it? did it just kind of happen? No, no, not at all. I, I, I honestly like the way that happened... Um, I moved to Amsterdam when I came back from Australia and I was like, oh, you know what? Like, I'm just going to move to Amsterdam. I just want to, you know, I just want to go back because I was a raver before I went to, went to Australia, like from the late eighties, early nineties. And I I loved it. And when I came back, I was like, I want to move to Amsterdam. You know, I'm collecting records. I want to dive deeper into this stuff. So I went actually literally after three months, when I settled in Amsterdam, I went to this record shop called Midtown and there was a, a a person working there um, 
And we started to talk about music and what the influences were. And we really had a big click. And he said to me, oh, like, you know, and I, I must have been there for like four hours. And he said, well, just like, come to the, come to this and this bar, because I'm, I'm always DJing on the Monday night and just bring some records and you can just do a DJ thing. And then I did that. It was fun. And then he said to me like, uh, oh, actually, you know, in two weeks time, there's a show there and there and there. And I've never, I, I'd never played in front of a big crowd or anything, like not like a proper party with like thousand people or something. He said, why don't you just come to this place and we can do a gig there. So, and <laughs> the next step was him, him ringing me up like, do you want to do a residency at Mozzo? I was like, what? Yeah, because no one's doing electro. We should do electro. It's not happening in the city. It's only happening in Rotterdam and in Den Haag and, and Alkmaar and God knows where. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm well up for it. So the next thing we knew, we... We just had an electro night and just played like all kinds of stuff from like booty and really fast stuff and open up with like ambient and an IDM warpy reflexy kind of stuff. And yeah, that was that was really quick, but not because I was haunting, like like it was pushing it. It's just I just went with an open mind like, oh, let's move to Amsterdam and and, and just bumped into the right person in the record shop and, and, and we, we clicked. So, yeah, there weren't so many people people doing the, the same genre. Yeah, yeah. What, what, was there an audience for it in the city, for that kind of music? It, was, it wasn't big, but it was definitely there, yeah. Like, I mean, places like Paradiso and, and Melkweg, they have like a second room. So somebody would ask us to do the second room and we would do electro and breakbeat and, and, and this IDM kind of stuff. And, and they would do techno or house or, or trance in the, in the main room and we would just do the, the second room. I mean, it's not that, it's not... You, it's not another thousand people crowd, but there was always a nice crowd with freaks that we also knew that were going to come because we were doing it, basically. Yeah. You know, when you get a little bit of a follow because people are like minded, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was enough for me. <laughs> but Amsterdam was very housey at the time. Rotterdam was much more experimental when it came down to this kind of sounds. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was the that was the kind of the reputation of the two places. I remember reading about it at the time. Yeah. Not having been to them. So you mentioned that you were going raving much earlier though. So what kind of raves were you going to in the late 80s, early 90s? Well, I, like I'm from the south of Holland. So so the basically the, the first house records that I've heard, I'm, I must have been 80, 88, I was like 14 or something. It was like new beat because it came from Belgium and we, we lived close to the Belgian border. That was interesting. And some some uh, bars would play it. So we would just listen to it, not knowing what it was. Like, I, it was just like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. Cool. And then I was, before I went to Australia, still living down south and we would just go wherever. I mean, Holland is very small. So if you jump in the car, one and a half hour later you're at like some other city where stuff is happening and I, I I run into some people that were very deep into that scene so I just connected with them and then just went with where they were going basically and I have to say in Eindhoven you had the old FNR and they had a great great um, um, set of lineups there like there were loads of people coming and 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 you probably remember that like back in the day, it was also not so defined of like house and tech, techno could run um, at the same time. And it could be a drum and bass night at one night and it could be a house and techno thing the other night. But nobody actually complained about like the genres being too different. Like, and we also didn't really 
um, we didn't really care if we would go to a drum and bass night. Like if we know that knew that the DJ was good or the DJ was interesting, we would go. So we weren't really related to um, to uh, a certain style of music. And were these mostly kind of like warehouse type parties, or were they clubs as well? Club. Well, I would say venue. I say it's fair. It's 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 a better a better definition. Venue. Mm. But you had the you had the still had a lot of squats in the late eighties, early nineties. But say like the most most of it was early nineties. There was a, there was still um, stuff like for example in Eindhoven there was like the Pillar Fabrik, which was a an empty yeah what was it an old old warehouse that made pills. I don't know what kind of pills it was just called the Pillar Fabrik. Yeah whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and and there were, there, there were, they would find locations to do parties, you know, like it's more like people finding the right location to do the party. I, I guess that you would call it a warehouse party, but yeah, it could also be a garage or or some odd building, you know. And I think a lot went through flyers. So just basically like picking up the flyer and, and just kind of like knowing what crew was doing, what kind of led you to the right parties. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it clubs, though. I, we were more out there in... In, in yeah in the venues and like at what point did you start to want to be a dj was that something from early on that it, it just felt like an obvious thing i to never you? wanted to be that like that just happened <laughs> right okay okay it's something <laughs> happened to you just like accident yeah, it just happened yeah <laughs> no because i was i mean as i said like i went to amsterdam because i was um i was a graphic designer and then after a, i think my longest period of time that i actually worked for a company was a year and then I said oh god I need to get the hell out of here and then um, uh, became a freelance and I was just a freelance graphic designer obsessed with music and you know how you how you just like when you're hanging out with, with people that are also into electronic music you just play some records and you you, you give each other some feedback on what you bought and, and 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 what's coming out, and because there was no digital format then, it's much it's it was much more about like oh have you checked that have you bought this have you done that and like I think next thing you know you've got a whole record collection, but it was never about like oh I'm becoming a DJ. That's still very new to me. If somebody wants to become a DJ, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's definitely. It seems like a sort of career choice now in a way that it probably didn't feel like back then. In fact, it definitely didn't feel like back then. But I think, I, I, mean, is, I mean, is it fair to say, and maybe you can can elaborate on it, like, is it fair to say that because it was it was much more a movement back then because it was much n- newer and, and um, fresh that you were just part of this thing that was happening rather than I want to do this because like, and I think a lot of people from our, I don't know if you're my generation or I'm your generation, whatever, but a lot of people my age would say like, we we didn't even know what the DJ would look like because there was this level of anonymity because there was no social media and I'm not saying it's better or or worse, but it, it did not have so much of a profile. Like it took me ages to understand, um, who was who and what they looked like. And you weren't, I mean, I think my dad shouldn't hear this, but like, because there was also a big period of time with the ecstasy, people were just not, <laughs> they were not interested in looking at the DJ. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
I don't know, like my son, my son old, but like I, it was just not something we were preoccupied with. Like the music itself, it was all about the music that was so much more important and so much more, much more fascinated. Like I, I remember that when the Boards of Canada record came out, like music has a right to children. And I went to, and to this record shop in Eindhoven, a guy called Robop. He was like, he's a very, he's a massive um music head and he would give me the latest release and he's like oh look this is a record and it's called music has the right to children and he's like isn't that deep like think about it think about it and you would just listen to it in the shop and just nerd around and like oh my god what is it and blah and and I think that that was so much more the thing than actually saying like I'm becoming a DJ because it was not about being a DJ it's about like what kind of records can you play at what party I don't know. It's hard to explain, but maybe it makes a little bit of sense. <laughs> no, well, I, I think like I think it's just inevitable, really, that after a certain period, a kind of infrastructure gets built up around something like yeah. this. So it's kind of normal, I think, that you know there are institutions kind of like spring up, and particularly around the press. Because I mean, one one thing that sort of stuck out at me when when you were just saying all that was that the dance music press, which kind of gradually built up throughout the 90s and by the late 90s was quite a big thing, particularly in the UK. The UK music press was kind of like, you know, selling tons and tons of magazines by the end end of the 90s. But it obviously, you know, what made it into the music press was only a snapshot of what was going on musically, right? So, I mean, I had Dubfire on here and, and he was talking about them doing Deep Dish in the sort of early 90s and being obsessed with getting into Mixmag which just totally blew my mind that a couple of guys from Washington were, were, would be so preoccupied with getting into a British magazine but that was for a lot of people I think maybe the people who were uh, maybe across the pond more than in Europe like that was a, a big kind of like touch point for it but I, but I remember reading Mixmag in the mid mid to late 90s, but going to mostly to kind of underground trance parties, which were not covered yeah. in, in the music press at all. So not having... Oh, there was a lot, there was a lot that was not covered. Like, they've, 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 re- they've, re- they've released a, a, a massive book on, on the Dutch dance industry and <laughs> I'm not in it. Isn't that funny? Like, <laughs> I thought it was it's really terrible. funny. No, no, it's (laughs) seriously, I thought it was amazing. I was like, wow, you know, like, so that's, it's uh, these, these things are so defined by who writes them, who's the initiative. And most of the time, honestly, most of the people that want to do a book on a certain thing, a book on techno, but I mean, why would you want to do a book on techno? What, what is that for? Like, it's never accurate. And you're always forgetting the people that actually build something really important. And those are always your local DJs, always the DJs that don't get to see the limelight because people don't know enough about a certain scene that they have to interview this and this person that worked in that record shop that knew all about that genre. These people get always forgotten. And I I mean, quite frankly, I don't give a fuck that I'm not in the book, but I'm saying it's like, it's always people that write about these things that just don't know what they're writing about. Like, and I I find it always very like, uh, why would you want to do a book on certain things and can it not just just let it be what it is kind of thing, you know, because there's so many, so many people and thanks to Discogs, 
you can finally get a chance to understand who produced what, like back in the day. Oh my God. And especially the period of time, 88, 92, is fascinating to see where are all these people, but they defined this particular sound. Do you know what I mean? Like those people were responsible for so many great records and they never get spoken about in any book or documentary or Wikipedia or whatever. Like it's so it's it's such a subjective thing. And then be, wanting to be in Mixmac and later on wanting to be in the RA top hundred. Like what is that even? Sorry, like, what is that even? Why is that even? Why and how? Like, seriously, based on what is is if you if you would really take that serious, that could really give you like bad dreams. Do you know what I mean? Like there's so many people out there that play fantastic music that might not end up in these never get the recognition for it, you know? And then then people are thinking that being in Mixmag or being in a certain, like, equivalent magazine is, like, um, is, like, the thing to do. It's it's really strange. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think people are influenced by narratives which get spun. And obviously those narratives, like, to a large extent, play out in the press. And maybe maybe more on social media now. Maybe that explains why the dance press has declined to the extent that it has. But I think that um, I think it's understandable. I think certainly for people who are maybe living in places where there isn't a big scene and for them to kind of participate, uh, they do so kind of secondhand via kind of narrative structures which which are built up. And so I can kind of understand it from that perspective. But I do agree with you that it's extremely unhealthy to be um, obsessing about those sorts of arbitrary yardsticks which seem important but you know, really are not, they're not artistically important, right? I mean, they might be important, certainly with the, with the RA poll. I mean, that, that became important for promoters in a way, which is just, was totally ridiculous, but, but again, sort of understandable. But if that, if that becomes, if that becomes, if that becomes important for promoters, that means that you're not doing, you're, you're not doing it for the right reason. Because I think like, I don't like, I mean, I'm a bit ashamed to ask, but I don't know how much of, of a p- promoter you were yourself when you were still still living in the UK but like when, when oh, we I've done bits did, and pieces yeah 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 like when when we were doing parties in Amsterdam or me on my own or it was about like inviting fun people that played great quality music and and it was also word to mouth and it's fair enough that it becomes a modern world where it's more accessible and people exchange via the internet or something but i think grading certain things makes me question like who is the one that's deciding this like and who is the people that are actually tuning in to be able to have a voice in this i think if as a promoter if you're looking at instagram likes these days it it's just um a result of 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 overconsumption and the the challenge is for us to do new things that give a counter reaction to um these party and parties and even you know take our creativity to the next level like moan about it for 5 minutes and then think about like hey what can we do 
that would be interesting now to pre present new creative projects or uh, new collaborations or to, like look out for new talent and feature them or like when you when you've got the chance to do a lineup maybe ask if you can bring somebody or this kind of stuff you know so that you can highlight new talent the way you've once been highlighted by somebody else and this is i think it's a much more challenging uh, process than whining about it because in the end of the day like if you compare like uh, 86 when the first yeah you know, probably the the very first house records were coming out and and got to get in played in the clubs and where we are now it's 2022 that's a long time so it's not new anymore like you can whine about it but it's not new anymore but the challenge is how can you how can you recycle stuff how can you bring in new stuff how can you convince people with these times that are very chaotic and 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 you know still debate about it but not letting it be the topic of the day you know and switch to let's do it and put your ass into gear kind of uh mode and 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 make some make some room for new talent and ask if you can bring a local dj or ask if you can bring a guy that or a girl or um uh they them and everybody else what you could you know to bring them on the lineup and make some room and and actually put some effort into um other people and other people's talent i think that's the ch that's a challenge yeah yeah I, i i totally hear you and i totally agree with you um on all those points i think like like the big change really compared to the you know the periods that we're talking about is that just the amount of money involved with live music events. I mean, live electronic events like raves, yeah. big, big, big parties, and the the kind of need to you know, manage risk associated with those sorts of budgets. You know, and it's very easy, I think, to well, I agree with everything you just said, but I think, like I said, the overall revenue pot has grown to such an extent, and you know, people have been able to make really good livings like all the way down like absolutely obviously, the, obviously all the the big headliners take the most but like you know going all the way down the tree you're able to make a living as a as a sort of touring dj in a way that you were not in the early 90s mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. but i wanted to ask you a question which we've talked a little bit about on previous episodes with regards to like the rising costs like energy costs and inflation and living costs, how that might feed through into clubs and into touring generally, just raising the costs of touring and how that might impact the the kind of careers of artists, you know, making a living from music, essentially, how much... How Do you mean like flights being expensive and and parties not being sold out and... Yeah, I mean, like, you, mean? you know, just... just yeah, that's that sort the of thing. I mean, like, with, you know, just the cost of running a club are going to go up a lot probably yeah. in the next couple of years and that's going to have a real pressurizing effect on on probably stuff like ticket prices too you know because yeah, you know, absolutely just keeping absolutely. the lights on is going to be a challenge so i mean do you have any thoughts on that generally about how it might play out i think there's a lot there's a lot of things happening um it's interesting because i'm 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 from 1974 so when i look back at like the the period of time that i've already lived I'm from the Netherlands, so it's fair to say that we. I'm I'm coming from a very safe country. We were not 
currently not at war. I mean, we interfered with everybody else's business like every country does, which is absolutely wrong. But then we're talking politics, so let's not do that. But like saying is like this, when COVID came, it was the first time that a lot of Western European countries were like, oh, shit, okay, we actually have to do something and we have to make room for other people and we have to be mindful and we have to... It was the first crisis I mean, there's there's other countries that have been facing war and difficult times, but we are so spoiled. Most of the West European countries have been so spoiled. And for the first time, it came very close, you know, in our own lives where we were confronted with like not being able to work for two years. What are you going to do? Are you going to panic? Are you going to accept it? Do you have savings? And when COVID was over and everybody was kind of kickstarting back into the game, like, oh, yeah, we've learned so much. And in the end of the day, nobody learned anything because it's just follows right. exactly the same path. Do you know what I mean? But then another factor that um, uh, happened was Russia declaring the war on the Ukraine that was all of a sudden much more close to us than all the trouble that was going on in Syria and Afghanistan and many more countries being in agony. But for us, that felt like, ooh, you know, because directly it it has something to do with the economical circumstances we're in so for the first time we feel it's a threat you know and to give to give you a pragmatic answer i can't i i see that flights are much more expensive concerts are not sold out festivals are not sold out my answer this to this is it's a, it's a reaction to a massive peak in capitalism that there will always be a downfall of how good and how luxury luxurious our uh, our life was so there's always a they can it can always happen then there's a flip side mm. you know when you're when you're talking about like um karma like if you're too greedy or it, it is it's going too well and you forget about like little things something hits you in the face that's a that's a normal thing to me i think and um i think in general there was so much money floating around in this industry and when it when it gets a crack also because of covid and and the war and many other circumstances it's just you need to ride it out you need to ride it out and accept the circumstance and accept that we have had a great period of time where we made a lot of money and some of us didn't and they they will probably be more fair in giving you a good answer how it is to make fantastic records and nobody books you because they don't give a fuck about you you know and i think like this is this is a reality check like hey look how much you've done look how how privileged you were doing this for such a long time and now you have to sit tight and maybe it's getting a little bit more uncomfortable and maybe i might be out of business in two years that can happen you know, and it's just a natural flow of how the world comes, things come in circles. So if there's a, if there's an inflation going on, or if there's a recession going on, it's all part of what already has happened. But because it's new for us, because we are from West Europe and most of us have had a decent life, you know, we're not used to this. We don't know how to, how to deal with a crisis. And I, I think that's a much bigger problem than actually prices that are changing and and um, things becoming more expensive. It's an attitude that needs to change, in my opinion, towards these bigger influences. And, you know, maybe have a little bit more appreciation for the minor details that uh, that were taken for granted. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You were like, what was the question? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I completely, I think what uh, what you're describing is definitely a, it's kind of a North European thing, isn't it? I kind of, with Germany, Holland, Belgium, UK, these sorts of countries, because like 2008 was, I think, tra- deeply traumatic for I mean, it's a country like Spain, for example, was just torn apart by what happened in 2008 and into 2012. And and in Portugal, and Portugal was a mess yeah, yeah, of yeah. economic... But do, did, did we give a fuck about it? No. no That's what we I'm didn't. saying. Yeah, That's the exactly. thing. That's the thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, did we care about it? No, because it wasn't our problem. And now that we, as the bigger countries financially and with the, with the, with the more capitalistic attitudes are now in under a, a certain level of threat, it's always like, oh, how, how are we going to do this? I'm like, well, now it's your time because other people already had that same feeling of not having any money to do certain things and being limited within their capacity of of, of uh, freedom, of being wild and doing crazy stuff, you know. It's just a natural response to overconsumption. Take, 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 bigger, 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 bigger. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, ah! god you know like really okay yeah (laughs) circle of life no yeah 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 totally so okay i've got one last question and the question is is djing an art form depends how you approach it i think it can be a fart form and it can be an art (laughs) form and it can be just it can be just what it is i think it it all depends on what you want from it yourself what you get from it, you know? And I think it's all about the approach. And believe it or not, like I, I stopped playing vinyl. I never thought I would, but, and it was very scary. But once I got to juggle around with new technology and fell in love with new technology also, that made me a different DJ. And I think it's all about, it's all about like, yeah, why, why are you there? Why are you there? And what's the story that you want to tell? And how, how serious do you take it? And it's okay to not take it serious. And it's okay to take it very serious. I take it very serious. Some people, in my perspective, don't take it serious. But like, who am I to judge about it? You know, I think it's everything. It's a form of art, but it's also a form of fart. It's been, um, it's been um, v- very precious to people and it's been taken the piss out. And that's the yin yang in everything. It's a duality of everything. Like it's the same in photography. It's the same in, in painting. It's the same in any form of art or, or creative, uh, creative output. Like it doesn't matter if it's DJing or whatever you do, pottery or, or sculpture. It's, it's some, some people take the piss and some people are fantastically brilliant at it. You know, it depends on yourself. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. That's a good answer. I'll, I'll take that. So yeah, this has been great. Thanks. Uh, have, I, have I got the washing machine? Have I got the washing machine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thanks for doing this. It's been fantastic. Thanks so much. And to you. Yeah, that was Steffi. Really enjoyed that conversation. Some interesting insights on a number of different topics. It's just really nice to be able to sit down and talk to someone who you've met lots of times, but you know, I've never had a that long of a conversation one-to-one with her. So it was great to be able to do that. And as I mentioned at the top, that conversation absolutely delivered. It was one that I wanted to have on the show from pretty much the start in terms of uh, 
doing this podcast. Yeah, really interesting to hear about her journey in production, actually, as much as anything else. She was obviously doing it for a long time before she released anything, as we heard. And, you know, sometimes it just takes that long to get your head in a space where you can put your music out there, I guess. You know, it's really as simple as that, I think. And sometimes you need someone to push you. I mean, it sounds like she definitely had some useful outside input to get to that stage where she was ready. And that can be super useful too, you know, having that external pressure to, you know, make you get off your backsides and, you know, get your stuff out into the world. So great episode, really enjoyed it. And that's about it for this week. If you want to support the show, you can join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. Listen to my review of the Spotify (laughs) Global Top 10 from last weekend. There's going to be more of those pods going forward. I might do the UK Top 10 next week, potentially. Uh, And there's music going up there too on the musicality tier. Yeah, it's basically a way of getting on the Hot Flush promo list. That pretty good value. And um, yeah, we'd be very appreciative if you would find it in the kindness of your heart to do that. If you don't want to, then it's fine. Totally fine. You can leave us a review or a rating instead. It's not a complete, you know, comparative gesture, but it's as much as you can do at this point. So yeah, wherever you listen to this, leave us a five-star rating or a gushing review. That'd be nice of you. And hit the follow button on the Spotify playlist. That's another thing you can do. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist. Join us for Discord, hotflushcorns.com slash Discord. I will see you back here, same time, same place for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.